Good evening. How are you tonight? Good. Before we get into our study in 2 Corinthians tonight, we have a, a few people that are going out overseas. It's a difficult time to travel, especially overseas. And uh, we have uh, somebody going to Panama, somebody going to Uganda, and somebody going to Spain. And we simply want to acknowledge them, their work in the Lord. We want to pray for them as they go out. And um, then we want to sort of publicly acknowledge them by giving them a little New Testament and uh, a book and a certificate that says, we agree with God, you are called, God bless you. And uh, go with His grace. You know, Jesus said go into all the world. He never mentioned anything about returning. There's a lot of ways you can look at that. But we have the command, go. And um, a few in our congregation are taking that very seriously. And we want to pray for them. And we're going to ask them to come up. George Apostle, he's going to Panama. You know, you can't have a better name for a missionary (laughs) whose name means one who is sent, which is really what a missionary is. He's being sent out. And uh, we've been working uh, with the Guaymi, a tribe down in that area, and he's going to be leaving next month. Um, So he's going to be going out with us along partnering with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, Ryan McCabe is going to Uganda. Ryan, come on up. Jay and Sonny McLaughlin are in Uganda, and um, he's going to go help them. They, they need help at this point, and uh, their work is uh, growing, and so they need more help um, working with the prison ministry and the medical ministry there in Uganda. Then uh, Jean and Ruben Duran are going to Spain. You guys have come up. And Carlos Casco is um, already one of our missionaries in Spain. They're going to be uh, going out to work uh, with uh, those good folks. Now I've got all this stuff to to hand out. So George, this is for you, and for Ryan, and for Reuben and Jean. And we're going to pray for all of you. Heavenly Father, we lift these who have responded to your call to go out to the field in different parts of the world, Central America, Europe, Africa, places that are far away from this place, But even as you told your disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they left Jerusalem and they went out. And then others followed and they went out further. And then eventually the gospel came to America. We're privileged to be able to send from America, sort of full circle, those out to parts of the world that are even closer to Jerusalem than than we are. We pray, Father, that you would have your hand on each one and make their ministry fruitful. 
not only work through them, but Lord, do a great work in them that you may be glorified, keep them safe, give them wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that the people that they speak with and minister to would see your love in them and a great harvest would come through their effective ministry. We commend them, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. That's always fun. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter five. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts, our minds, as we open up this book. These are times that we need wisdom. We need to walk circumspectly, wisely, as wise, not as fools, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Those familiar words written so long ago, 2,000 years almost, ring so clearly in these days in which we live. Truly, as everyone has already noted, the world has suddenly changed. And in that, we have an opportunity that's an opportunity perhaps like never before in these last days to make a difference. Lord, it's easy to be consumed with self, but it's not prudent to do so. It's easy to shut everything else out and just be consumed with our own little world, but it's unwise. Wise living, Lord, must consist in making right priorities. And every time we gather together, every time we open your word, every time we have a quiet time on our own in devotion, help us more and more to hone those priorities, to know which direction to move in, what decisions to make, what things to be occupied with. And may the joy of the Lord be our strength in these times. And so, Father, we pray that we might have open hearts and minds to comprehend the truth and to respond in kind. In Jesus' name, amen. Last couple of days, I've been phoned on my mobile phone from one of the Red Cross workers in New York City who thought I was still in New York City. And that's because I have a pass uh, as being trained by the Red Cross Emergency Incident Team um, and to work down at, at the site, Ground Zero, with the firefighters and police officers and with families at the Family Center at what they call Pier 94 in Manhattan until December. But I told them I'd be in and out, and they thought I was in and I'm out. They got the phone message here. 
And um, the, the message was simply, we need you tomorrow morning. That came last evening. So we need you today, this morning, at the family center, uh, along with the other chaplains, because today is the day Mayor Giuliani said that the uh, death certificates will be issued. And it's always traumatic when one suspects the worst and then it is confirmed by the coroner and the doctor issues a death certificate. Bringing closure, but a horrible kind of closure. There is the realization at death that you need support. That's where ministers often come in, chaplains often come in when that death notice is given, when somebody is near death at the hospital. Bring in the minister. You need some comfort. You need encouragement. So I got on the phone and called those that I knew in the area who were there, who do serve as chaplains, who are ministers, to be down there this morning. This last week has been, people say, well, what, what, what was it like? It's very difficult to describe. One word comes to mind. It was very intense. You're around hard workers. You're around sorrowful and grieving families. You're around death, both in sight and smell. And in all of that, I was also around hope. I saw people filled with hope. I saw people's countenance change as suddenly they had a glimmer of hope. One of the things that we established this week, I think my wife gave you the reports, is we established uh, a prayer center in New York City. And uh, it was under the auspices of Samaritan's Purse, the Billy Graham Association, Harvest Fellowship in New York City, and Safe Harbors that all came together to establish this. We called it the Billy Graham Prayer Center, and In the New York Times and in the New York Post, we ran advertisement, half-page ads that simply said, need prayer? Call this number, 1-800, and we gave the number, the Billy Graham Prayer Center. And it said, solicitations will not be sought, nor will they be accepted. In other words, if you read this ad and you live in New York City, we wouldn't take your money if you tried to give it to us. We're here to give to you, not to take from you. So the first phone call that we received was from a Jewish woman. She lost her daughter in the World Trade Center. As she made the phone call, she was holding her daughter's daughter, the granddaughter that she was now left to raise. And she said, I just want to call. I just call to thank you for coming and doing this coming to our city and being here just to offer support and prayer. Another call that we received, we received several, and the phone calls are picking up now, and they average between 15 minutes and an hour. It's not just, hi, would you pray, bye. These are people that want to talk and process and decompress the information, the tragedy. One lady called. A relative was lost in the World Trade Center incident. But more things had happened. That was tragic enough. Another thing, her husband was in the midst of leaving her. And if that wasn't bad enough, her husband was not only leaving her, he was leaving her for another man. She found out he's a homosexual and leaving me, and I'm pregnant. 
And so she called to talk, and she called to pray, and she wanted answers, and she had questions. And the counselor was a young believer, but she was just so full of the Spirit, so seasoned in the Lord, and gave all the right answers and shared and prayed and cried with her. And then the counselor hung up the phone, and she said with with a, a huge smile to the other phone counselors, I just led my first person ever to Jesus Christ over the phone. The book of 1 Corinthians was a book of rebuke as well as a book of theology. 2 Corinthians is a book where Paul just, in the midst of the crisis they were going through, opens his heart to them. It is less theological, it is more personal than any book Paul ever wrote. You you could even call the title of the book A Heart Wide Open, just sharing with him his heart. It is true that people don't care what you know. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And just like this gal on the phone cared and loved and shared, and that made an impact, so it was making an impact with Paul's listeners as he wrote a very poignant passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, It is a passage that I often read at funerals. It talks about what happens to our body upon death. Where do we go? What happens after death? When there's some tragedy or by natural causes, we pass from this world, then what? And though we often read it at funerals, Paul's whole point was motivation, his motivation for ministry. What made this guy tick? What drove him? How could he face obstacles, tragedies, disappointments, hindrances seemingly to his ministry, and just keep going? And he answers the question very, very personally. If you go back to verse 16 of chapter 4, it forms part of the context. It helps us get our bearings as we navigate through the passage. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I love how Paul opens this chapter. Actually, there were no chapters when Paul wrote the letter. That was added later. But this thought begins with confidence. He didn't say, you know, I I sort of hope Or it is my personal belief that he's very dogmatic. We know our future. You don't have to guess your future. I've told you before how before I became a Christian, I went up to 
my priest in the church I grew up in, and I had eternal questions. I said, I want to go to heaven. He said, that's good. But I want to know that I'm going to heaven. I'm going to make life choices. How will I know I'm going to go to heaven? He said, you can't know. Pardon me? I retorted. You can't know till you die. I said, excuse me, I don't want to be irreverent, reverent, but isn't that a little too late to find out? We know. People want to know the future. What's going to happen? What happened to my loved one? I know that people want to know this because I know what they spend for those stupid, lame, fruitless astrological charts. And I also, from time to time, fall victim to late-night television. And I see people like Madame Cleo <laughs> reading her tarot cards, telling people the future. Or these people who are, are getting messages from the other side and telling about this person's life and then telling the future. And they walk away going, Oh, I hope he's right. Oh, I hope she's right. Paul said, We know. There are certain things we know about our future. And I love the confidence that we have as Christians. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, the earthly house, this tent, is your body. It's your physical body. If it is destroyed... Now, why does he say if, not when? You know, we all say we're, we know we're all going to die. Well, because he left the contingency plan wide open. The if is if the Lord comes in the rapture of the church, which he didn't for Paul, which he didn't for the subsequent generation, but he might for us. He might not, but he might. So if, if we die, if the Lord doesn't come back and we die, if the tent is destroyed, we have a building with God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know... I've been accused, you've been accused, we've all been accused from time to time of being escapists as Christians. Oh, you Christians, always thinking about pie in the sky, the sweet by and by, going to heaven. You're so heavenly minded, they say, you're no earthly good. Well, I believe you're not really any earthly good or much earthly good until you are heavenly minded. Because when you are heavenly minded, then you're ready to die. And if you're ready to die, you're really ready to live. Because you approach life unafraid, without fear, confident, knowledgeable. And you're able to help people get their bearings and tell them eternal directions. When you have a heavenly mindset, you know where you're going. You live a pure life. In 1 John chapter 3, John begins that chapter by saying, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it doesn't know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him 
purifies himself, even as he himself is pure. In other words, when you live with heaven in mind, when you live with eternity in scope in view, you live in such a way as to detach from the present age and to attach to the future age. You live with a light touch in this world. You purify yourself. You know how to walk. You know how to choose things, to say yes as well as no to certain things. Remember the night before Jesus left his disciples in the upper room, John chapter 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Now some of you need to hear that tonight. Some of you are disoriented with what has happened in the last few weeks. What might happen in the next few weeks? It's enough to make anyone discouraged and disoriented. An impending war? Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, said Jesus. Believe also in me. Why? Because in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And later on in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul spoke of that, the coming of Christ, he said, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And so we gather together as we look to the future with great knowledge, great comfort, great hope. We're not escapists. We're realists. Now notice in verse 1 that Paul compares the body, your body, to a tent. It's very picturesque because a tent is temporary. If you've ever camped, you know that. A tent is temporary. A tent is flimsy for the most part. A tent really isn't a beautiful structure. Now, I like tents. I love to backpack. I love to camp. And I can look at a tent and go, that's a cool design. But, you know, it's not, it's not anything that you'd landscape around or decorate within. <laughs> because it is temporary. A building, in comparison to a tent, and that's the analogy Paul is drawing, is more permanent. You buy a house, you don't plan to sell it in a week or three days. You're going to be there a while. It's a more permanent dwelling. And so using human terms that we can understand, and Paul was, by the way, a tent maker. He dealt with that material. He made tents, but he also knew they were temporary, they were flimsy, and your body, like a tent, is soon going to pass away. Whenever I go camping, it's, you know, the first day is exciting. Second day is exciting. And if you backpack, you know, if you, if you do it for a while, the fun, though it is fun, at least for me, wears off. You know, about the third day when you're smelling really ripe and you're feeling really gritty, and you've been in this tent, you know, you're just like, I, I, I long for the home, the house, the shower, the soap, the shampoo, real food. One time I stayed in a tent, went around the United States for almost three months. I felt like a Bedouin. You know, you'd camp out, you'd pick up the tent, put it in the truck, go to another place. You do this night after night to a whole summer. 
And after three months, I was ready to settle down. It, that sort of just cured me of wanderlust. I'm going to settle down now. Find a place, get an apartment or get a house, stay there a while. Well, notice what it is. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, that is not of this world, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Now, as temporary as our, our bodies are, and we, we know this, but we don't act like we know it, right? Some of us are still trying to do everything we can to stay young, though we can't. You can fool some of the people some of the time, like Abraham Lincoln said, uh, but, but, you know, the tent is temporary. You, you might get a tent flap lift <laughs> or paint the fabric of the tent, dye it a little bit, make it look like it's brand new. But eventually it is a losing battle. But here we are trying desperately to hold on to the tent, make it look young, eternal youth. You can't. How did James describe your life? For our life is but a vapor. It's here for a little while, then it vanishes away, his words. That's an interesting description, you know. You might want to try that sometime. Well, tell me about your life. Okay. That's it. That's my life. When you compare my tent, my little lifespan to eternity, that's it. It's a vapor. It appears and then it vanishes quickly away. And one day the movers are going to come. That's how I like to look at it. It'll be time to move. You know, when somebody dies, we usually say they died or they passed away. If you think of Paul's analogy that we're in a tent, it is temporary, it is flimsy, but one day we're going to move into a permanent dwelling place in heaven. It brings a whole new light, a whole new meaning to death. It would be more biblical... Next time a Christian you know dies to say he moved. Well, what happened to him? Well, he moved. He moved? Yeah, well, he moved permanently from here. He moved to heaven. That's where he is. He's in God's presence. It's permanent. That'd be an accurate description. In fact, he graduated. He moved upward. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, that's your body again, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has also given the Spirit as a guarantee. Have you paid attention to yourself lately? Have you listened to the sounds that you make when you get up in the morning? <laughs> Try it. Listen carefully and you get up out of bed. It's probably not, wee, it's probably, oh. Well, I'm here to tell you, that's scriptural. That is okay to do. In fact, 
as you grow older and you realize your tent pegs and, and the tent structure is weakening and, and, and you're, you're, you're not as strong as you used to be and, and you groan, is you realize the older you get, you realize your limitations. You can't do what you once did. Oh, you try it. You know, you're midlife and you try to, I'm, I'm, I can still do it. I'm still macho. You know, when the skate park opened, they said, you've got to be the first one to try it. I said, all right. So I put on the helmet because it was required. And I went out there and I thought, I'm all set. What a mistake. You know, I've skated before and I've done swimming pools. But that was, you know, millennia ago. That was so, so long ago for me. But I tried it. And, um, you know, I had scars to prove it. People after church said, what would you do to your arm? I still see a scar here. Well, that's from not wearing the elbow pads, the knee pads, and the Michelin Man suit that I should have worn when I entered the skate park. I just had a helmet on. I'll tell you what, I fulfilled Scripture for a week after that. Oh, mm, ah, I groaned. It's okay. We groan earnestly. That is, we sigh expectantly, maybe would be a better translation earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Now this is not some death wish that Paul has. This is not uh, groaning in the platonic sense where Plato despised the body and sought to be dismissed from the body. It's just that we know there's so much better ahead. We know the limitations of our body. We see the suffering. We see that we're subject to disease. And in that, there's a groaning, an eternal groaning. We were made for eternity. God has put, as Solomon so eloquently rendered it, eternity in our hearts. And so we look upward. We long, we sigh expectantly for heaven to come. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. We who are in this tent grown being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, no. But further clothed, that is, that heavenly dwelling heavenly clothing, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. President Adams was once asked a simple question, how are you doing today, President Adams? His answer was classic. He said, oh, well, the house is a little bit shaky. The tiles are falling off the roof. The foundation is getting flimsy, but Mr. Adams is just fine. In other words, my body might be falling apart, but inside I'm doing great. There was a longing. There is a longing. We have that, especially as believers. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This was God's plan all along, not to just keep us on this earth. He has, he has mansions in mind. He has eternity in view. who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What does that mean? Well, you may have it, as my Bible does, but look in the, in the margin, in the center margin or the, the side margin of your Bible, and you may see a little footnote that says, after guarantee, down payment or earnest. The Greek, arabona, down payment. It's a legal term, a contractual term. That means as part of the entire price that will be paid for you to get to heaven, part of it is the first installment, the down payment. 
earnest money. When you buy a house, you put a down on it. You buy a car, you put a down payment on it. In relational terms, when you get married, you give her an engagement ring. When you gave an engagement ring or you were engaged, let's say in in Jewish terms, in Old or New Testament, that was as good as being married. Once you were betrothed, you couldn't separate unless you filed for divorce legally. We're engaged to Jesus. We're the bride of Christ. We're in the betrothal period. And we're just waiting for Him to come and take us to the wedding feast. The down payment, the wedding ring, the first installment is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. When the Holy Spirit comes in upon conversion, He resides within us. He places a longing for heaven within our hearts. He puts a peace there, a joy, a contentment, and ah, this is the right decision. But all of that is a a foretaste of coming attractions, a preview, you might say, a trailer of coming, uh, coming things. And so the peace you felt, the experience you felt upon coming to Christ and having the Holy Spirit live within you, that's just the down payment. You're really going to experience peace. You're really going to have contentment and satisfaction when you're clothed upon with that heavenly habitation. That's just the engagement ring. Therefore, we are always confident. Again, notice the words of confidence. We know, we are confident, knowing, there it is, a strong word again, not just hoping so, figuring that perhaps but knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Easy to understand that. As long as I'm in this body here on earth, I'm not in the direct face-to-face fellowship presence with God. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. A Christian can be found in only one of two places. On earth or in heaven. There is no other intermediate step. You don't go to purgatory. There is no such thing. It is not in your Bible. That is, you don't have to go to a place where purgatorially, through long-term cleansing, your sins get purged and then you are fit to get into Christ's presence. That was taken care of at the cross. You don't go to limbo. You don't enter into a place of soul sleep where you're absolutely not tuned in, you're not conscious until the resurrection. You are in the presence of God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. While you're in the body, he says you're absent from the Lord. So, one of two places which tells you something about heaven. Heaven is not only a destination, it's to be a motivation. And I'll show you how in a minute. As you get down here, you'll see that this idea of resurrection, of heaven, of what is coming ahead, what he knew, motivated him to live now. He made it his aim, he said, to please God right here, right now. Because that down payment, that longing for heaven... Now, Paul figured it this way. You know, I, I have a short period of time to serve the Lord, right? You have your lifetime to serve Christ. After your life is over, when your tent, your body is destroyed, when you stand before Christ, when you're in heaven and all that stuff, you won't be able to serve Him like you can on earth. 
You say, well, we'll always serve the Lord in heaven. Oh, but in a very different capacity, you won't be able to lead anyone to Christ in heaven. There will all be Christians there. All believers. All those who trusted. Old Testament saints that look forward to it. New Testament saints. You, other believers. You won't be able to pass out a tract. You'll never be able to suffer again for the cause of Christ like you can now. All of those opportunities that bring blessing and reward will be gone. So heaven wasn't just a destination for Paul. It was a motivation. Now, I do want to clear something up in verse 6. We're always confident knowing while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Does not mean that here in the body, on earth, we don't have the fellowship with Christ. He's not saying you don't have the presence of the Lord. You do. He lives in you. He's with you. He's all around you. But the idea is just as he compares something temporary and flimsy like a tent to something uh, stable and eternal, so it is here. There's a difference between having the presence of the Lord like you have, and sometimes you feel it at other times greater than others. But you're going to have a direct contact in heaven, a face-to-faceness with God. And it won't be, well, I feel close to God one day and not close the next day. It's that constant that brings satisfaction. That's the idea of verse 6. It's a heavenly homesickness Paul is referring to. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, you've never seen heaven. You've never walked on those streets. You've never spoken with those other inhabitants, seen the angels, been in God's direct presence. You only have the promise. You have the scripture. You have the description. You can read Revelation 4, Revelation 5, and some of the other ones. So right now, since we don't have that direct contact with God, we live by faith in the promises. Now, Paul had an advantage over you. Paul spoke of himself, and we'll get to it in the 12th chapter of this book. He said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago from his vantage point. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but he was caught up into the third heaven, and he saw things that were so awesome, so cool, now I'm paraphrasing, so absolutely amazing, indescribable, that that if I were to describe it, and he does say he was the one that he was speaking of, It'd be a crime. Now, I am a little angry at Paul. I'm angry that he didn't at least try, you know, to to describe it. He said, listen, I was caught up into heaven. I was in this place and I actually saw it. Okay. What'd you see? (laughs) Ow, I can't really tell you. Well, just try it. Go ahead. You know, I don't mind. Just take a stab at it. Tell us something. He said, oh, it'd be unlawful if I tried to tell you. And so he just went on. No help. But as I look at Paul's life and see what that did to him, I'm forced to confess it must be amazing. In my father's house, there are many mansions. I'm convinced that when a believer dies, whether that believer dies of cancer slowly or dies from the impact of 
a 767 instantly. The moment he or she takes his or her last breath on earth and they take their first breath in heaven, I'm convinced their reaction must be something like, Wow! I don't think it's like Peter with the clipboard at the gates of heaven, all those lame jokes that are being told. But it's something absolutely amazing. And if you look at what it did to Paul and how it motivated him, you must, you must be forced to think the same. We're confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim. Now, there's, a, there's sort of a, a conclusion here. He's, he's saying what he just said, and now here's the reason why he said it. This is what it all does. Once you realize your future, once you know where you're going and you know what's in store, and by the way, if you want to live a good, solid, stable, confident Christian life, you better know what's ahead. Everybody that I meet who knows what's in store for their future never lives a wishy-washy existence. So find out what heaven's like. Find out your future. Once you know that, what does it do to you? Once you realize that, what does it do? Will you turn into a lazy Christian? Will you turn into some irresponsible person who would just, say, sit on their rooftop with binoculars waiting for Jesus to come, never getting involved in this earth? Will you be so irresponsible that you think, well, Jesus could come back at any moment. I'm just going to uh, let my credit card bill overflow and run out and stack up all sorts of debt because, you know, if he comes, and I don't have to worry about it. That's irresponsible. Jesus said, occupy until I come. So what happens when you have the confidence of the future that Paul just spoke about? Therefore, we make it our aim. Here's my goal. Here's my priority. Whether present or absent, whether I'm in heaven and apart from my body, or I'm absent from the Lord and I'm still in my body. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. When you live with the reality of what's ahead, it motivates you to be as pleasing to the Lord as you can right now. One, one young believer put it this way, I want to be as zealous for God as I used to be for the devil. And this kind of stuff motivates you to do that. There's an old uh, Indian saying that says, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. And it's true, isn't it? Your parents loved it. They saw you as prunish and and red and squirmy as you were when you came out of the womb, they looked at that and they said, yes, rejoice. But what did you say when you were born? You don't remember it, but I'm sure your parents would tell you, you cried. Every baby cries. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. That's the first part of the Indian saying. Second part, live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. How do you do that? Well, you lived to please the Lord. While I'm on earth, I'm going to please the Lord. If I die and go to heaven, that will be pleasing to the Lord. And I'll, be, I'll live my entire existence with that one aim in mind. Four, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, better translation, the awesomeness of the Lord, the fear of the Lord in the context of Proverbs 2 and 3, we persuade men. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a general judgment for all men at the end of the age. In fact, just to set the record straight, there is no such thing as one general judgment. You know, that's how a lot of people picture it. That you got everybody who ever existed sort of standing in line looking at their watches. This is going to take some time. And you just sit there and hope that God will call your name. Oh, your name's in the book. You come up here. That's not how it's going to happen. The judgment for the believer and the judgment for the unbeliever are separated by 1,000 years. Revelation 20 gives you that sequence. For the unbeliever, and this is not speaking of the unbeliever, our passage speaks of the judgment for the Christian, the believer, you and I. The unbeliever will appear after a 1,000-year period called the millennium in Revelation 20, at what is called in Revelation the great white throne judgment. It's specifically for unbelievers. Their name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, and they are judged accordingly, cast away from God's presence. However, this is speaking of the judgment for the believer, not of salvation, but a judgment after salvation, what you've done for Christ since you've been saved. How have you expended your time, your talents, your treasure, the gifts that God has given you? What have you done with them? All of that will be judged before this judgment seat of Christ, bema seat. You've heard Christians call it the bema seat. The Greek word here, bemata, the judgment or the bema seat of Christ. I want you to turn to another passage for a moment. Go back to the book preceding 2 Corinthians, to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. I want to tie a couple things together. Oh, let's start it at... Okay, verse 10. Verse 9, 4. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, or is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though by fire. You will stand before Christ one day to give an account for your works at this judgment seat, Bema seat of Christ. It is not a judgment for salvation. The judgment for salvation or not salvation for you happened at the cross. 
and really was actuated when you said, yes, Jesus, come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior. When you made that decision, you know what happened to you? Here's Jesus' words, John chapter 5. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Not will have someday in the future. Has it right now. And he continued, and will not come into judgment. For he has passed from death into life. So that's done. You're not going to be going over a clipboard and God saying, well, I'll tell you what. Okay, you can come in. You're going in. But you will stand before him based upon your works, what you've done. And he talks here about building a foundation and adding to that foundation. Remember in school, at the end of the year, at the end of the quarter, after all the work that you've done, you got a report card. This is your report card. And at this report card, you're either going to get a reward for what you did or the reward you could have had will be taken away because you either didn't get involved in it or you did the work in such a way that you brought glory to yourself and not Jesus. The word that he chose, by the way, is an important one to fix in your mind. The bema seat in Greek times was a raised stone platform in the agora, the marketplace. It is where the governor sat of the province. And when the Olympics were enacted when the runners would run the race in the Olympics. The one who got first place would stand before the governor, the judge, at the Bema seat. The judge would give him a reward, a laurel wreath, because he ran the race well. That's the imagery in Paul's mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Don't you know, said Paul, that everyone who runs in a race, they all run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, not only are you and I going to be judged for what we have done or not done as Christians since we've been saved, but as I mentioned, the manner in which you've done them. Remember Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, when you do your charitable deeds, don't do them in such a way as to be seen by men. Because if you, if you do it just to be seen by people, you've already gotten your reward. You got the applause. You got the notoriety. You got the plaque on the wall, this building donated by. You got your reward. Do it secretly, he said. When you pray, said Jesus, don't be like the hypocrites who stand on the corner, arms raised up, middle of the day, right, right on Central Avenue or I-40 and I-25 at the juncture, just so... Everybody driving by will go, look at that guy praying. Wow, he's spiritual. Jesus said, you got your reward. You did it to be seen by people. And when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who disfigure their faces so they look more pious than they are. For verily I say to you, they, they have their reward. Now, let me tell you the good news on this Bema seat thing. You can... Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Right now, you can be making installations into a heavenly bank account. You can be doing certain things, involved in certain things right now in your life, 
So that when you get to heaven, man, reward after reward after reward. Not everybody gets the same reward. We all get heaven. We all get salvation. But not everyone gets the same position in the kingdom. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I love what Peter spoke about in, in either First or Second Peter. You can read those books and find out exactly. He talked about having an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You know, th- there's, there's a difference between an entrance and an abundant entrance. You know, if you were to slip through the doors of the church tonight just before the doors were closing, well, you're in. But what if you came in and it was a surprise party for you? So when you got in, everybody turned around and, woo, all right. They clapped. It was an abundant entrance, a notable entrance. Well, I don't want to just get to heaven. I want an abundant entrance. Don't you? Don't you want to have treasures laid up for you? I mean, we're talking eternity here. That's a long time. Doesn't it make sense to labor now, to live now, so that eternity, you know, you've been storing up so much that when you stand before the beam of seat of Christ, it's not like, oh, well, sorry, you don't get that one. Oh, you could have had, don't get that one. But you, you, you have that abundant entrance. Enough said. Let's go on from here. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God. I also trust are well known in your consciences. What does he mean? I think really what he means is knowing the, the awesomeness, because it does speak about the fear of the Lord. Now, Peter did say judgment begins with the house of God, and if he begins with the house of God, how bad is it going to be for the unbeliever? So you and I are going to face the bema seat of Christ. We're not going to be judged for our past sins. We're going to come into the kingdom of heaven, but be judged for our works on a solely different basis. But imagine then what it is going to be like for the unbeliever. Therefore, you know, in one sense, uh, we live to please God. That's our response heavenward. But on the other, we have a response toward people on the earth, and that is to persuade them, to tell them, you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. My life is all about persuading people to get into God's kingdom. That's why Jesus, when he interviewed Nicodemus, you know, we, we like to think Nicodemus was interviewing Jesus, but we know by reading the passage it was the other way around. You know, Nicodemus starts out, well, we know you're a teacher come from God, and he's thinking, you know, very nicely and theologically. And Jesus cuts right to the heart. Unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You know why Jesus talked like that? Because Jesus had one aim in mind, and that is to get Nicodemus into the kingdom of God. So let's just cut to the chase here, Nick. You have to be born again or you're not going to the kingdom that you're talking about. So we persuade men. That's our aim, uh, earthward, toward men. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you the opportunity to glory on our behalf. There were, there were dissenters at Corinth, critics of Paul. And Paul said, I, I'm not writing this just to boast or to glory in myself. I'm giving you the ammunition to counterattack those who are slurring my name in Corinth. Now you've got an answer when they ask you about me. That you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. For if we are nuts, that's what it means, beside ourselves, 
It is for God. If we're sane, of sound mind, it's for you. No matter what we're accused of, whether some call us nuts or we really are sane, it's either for God or for your benefit. So that's how I live my life. You know, people thought Paul was nuts, right? Festus, the governor of Judea, when he stood trial in Caesarea, Paul was talking about the resurrection, and Festus interrupted and said, Paul, you're beside yourself. Your much learning has driven you mad. You know, they thought Jesus was nuts. That's right. Jesus' own family, Mary and his brothers and sisters in Mark's gospel, came to fetch Jesus because they thought he was mad. Nuts. Beside himself is the word. You'll be accused of doing it. You know, we prayed for missionaries tonight. I wonder how many people said, You're nuts. You're crazy. Why are you risking your life? You know, there's a war coming. Or we're in it. You're going overseas. You're going to risk your life on a foreign field for this gospel. Well, it's for, for God or for you. It's a willing sacrifice. Hey, newsflash. You're going to die anyway. Why not do it the right way? Live for Christ and let Him worry about if and when. Not that, that you live recklessly. You live circumspectly, but, you know, as we said a couple weeks ago, life itself is dangerous. So whether we're present or we're absent, we aim to please God. For I bear witness that according... Oh, boy, I'm in the wrong book. (laughs) And the time's up. Heavenly Father, right now at this stage of our life, we're walking by faith. We don't see you. There is not a face-to-face episode that we enjoy with you. We haven't seen heaven. But we know it's coming. We know it's true. We know that this body of flesh so aptly called a temporary tent is passing away. One day it will be taken away, will be dismantled, will be destroyed, consumed in the earthly sense that it might give way to something more permanent. Lord, some groan because they don't know the purpose and the meaning of life. They groan to know it. They long to be able to be confident. They groan to be able to say, I'm going to heaven. My sins are forgiven. Others groan because they know their sins are forgiven. They know they're going to heaven. And there's that deep longing to realize it personally. As Paul even said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, we've been sobered up the last couple of weeks. We always should live with the awareness that we need God, but but somehow, some reason, we realize it now more than ever before. That's a good thing. 
I pray, Lord, that many more who aren't yet prepared to meet you, and we all will, would make necessary preparations, bags packed, looking ahead, looking forward. And Lord, we can know for certain where we're going. We can know what will happen after we die because we can make a choice to receive Christ. You have made provision for our eternal life by one act, and that is the sending of your Son to die on a cross, and that finished work would justify us and render us born again as we trust in Christ as our Savior. We pray that many who haven't would do that tonight. Knowing, therefore, the awesomeness, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We pray, Lord, that many will be persuaded tonight to put their faith, their trust in you, to repent of their sins, to turn to Christ. 